Were you genuinely worried that the Rick and Morty return was an April Fool's joke? I just wanted to, s- to say that, that I'm a nerd. Do you refer to Settlers of Catan as a gateway game? I am a total nerd, too. Do you wish that Cones of Dunshire was a real game? You're like a ninja crossed with a Jedi or something. If you can answer any of those questions, then this is the podcast for you. This is Northwest Nerd, a show for all things nerdy in the Pacific Northwest and beyond. My name is Nick Jarin. And I'm Dyer Oxley. Every two weeks, we take you inside the world of Northwest Nerds. We talk a little pop culture, science, and technology. Coming up this episode, we'll take you inside the indie tabletop game scene here in the Northwest and what it takes to get your game made. But before that, we'll get into some news. And really quickly, I wanted to remind you all to go check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Just search for NW Nerd on any of those platforms. You'll see our logo. That's us. Go click follow. We post a ton of stuff up there that doesn't make it into the podcast. Stories we're reading and reacting to, such as some of the follow-up to the box office bombing of Ghost in the Shell. So go check out our social media for that. We try to keep the podcast around an hour or less so that you can consume the show during a day's commute. So uh, go check out our additional content over on our social media pages. Also, don't forget, spread the word. We're an independent podcast, and you listening to me right now are the reason that we exist. So go tell your friends. And with that, let's get to the news. About a year ago, the comic book reading public was shocked, shocked, I tell you, when we all found out that Captain America was secretly always an agent of Hydra, his arch enemy. What? Yeah, I know. Yeah. And now we're finally reaching the the end of that story arc in Marvel Comics right now, uh, Captain America Steve Rogers, culminating with the event that they're calling Secret Empire. Coming on, coming on the on the heels of something called Secret Wars, which there was already one in the seventies, mm. and a Civil War two. So they're just killing the naming. So game. there is a sort of kind of universe switch up going on with a lot of this stuff, and yeah. I have purposely not been paying attention to this particular timeline. A few timelines going on right now. Mm-hmm. So explain exactly what is going on with Captain America and this whole him being evil at this point. Because is this the main Marvel uh, storyline or is this like a storyline they're going to do and then, oh, by the way, we're going to reboot in a year so it doesn't really matter? It's a great question because just purely on principle, I wasn't a huge fan of that big shock at the end of the first issue of uh, yeah. Captain America Steve Rogers because – Technically, right now, he's not Captain America, right? Right. So this is part of the ongoing canonical Marvel universe right now. Hmm. This is what Steve Rogers is. Now, whether or not there's some kind of Mephisto snaps his fingers and everything goes back to normal, a la uh, Spider-Man not being married to Mary Jane anymore, there's always a risk of that happening. But for now... This is quote unquote real. But this is this is a case actually where I think that they aren't doing enough with the opportunity here because Captain America from his inception has always been one of the quote unquote good guys, right? He's he's an icon for a reason. And what this storyline does is turn that on its head and reimagine him as somebody who's been working for Hydra the entire time. Of course this shadowy deep government if you will was the, the <laughs> science hydra was the science department of the nazis during world war ii right mm-hmm. since the nazis fell they have 
infiltrated all these parts of our societies yeah. and governments and become the shadow organization. A that, lot of shades of like 70s yeah. thrillers and things like that. And right. to that end, they're actually borrowing the idea of Secret Empire from a Marvel event in the 70s that was also a Captain America uh, storyline. That one, as with a lot of art uh, and pop culture art, especially from the 70s, was just dripping in allegory yeah. to things that were actually happening within our government, like Watergate and things like that. This event, the new Secret Empire, is much different. And uh, I'm just going to take a quick second to read a couple lines from an Entertainment Weekly interview between uh, writer Nick Spencer and editor-in-chief for Marvel, Axel Alonzo. They sat down, and here's what the Entertainment Weekly piece says uh, before the actual uh, interview. Like other Marvel events... Secret Empire shares its name with a previous Marvel event, a 70s Captain America storyline by yada, 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 yada. Written in the wake of Watergate, the story had high political resonance, but Spencer and Marvel editor-in-chief Axel Alonso insist that Secret Empire has little to do with contemporary political parallels. It's an age-old battle of good versus evil with the top superhero in Marvel history on one side and all his friends and teammates on the other. So they're really trying to distance themselves from any kind of political commentary or, or allegory right. or anything like that. Let's just let's just pull the you know the cover off of this. They're saying yeah. that there's no uh, relation to the Trump administration. Is yep. what they're trying to say is that okay? We've got uh, clearly a bad guy, and I know you don't want me to be political and all that, but <laughs> clearly we got do what you're gonna do. We got Trump in the White House. There's no. There's no sort of uh, allegory here to, you know, good versus evil on our political spectrum. That's basically what they're trying to say. Do you, do you think that's a little bit of PR, you know, them trying to, like, toe the middle line and not? I, d I don't think it's PR. I think it's cowardice. I think that they should absolutely seize this moment to tell a story that is related to our political climate right now. It's on the minds of every single person in America. Yeah. We have a deeply unpopular president who is being investigated for a number of things. Now is the time to have your art reflect on that and try to make a point on it. And them insisting that this doesn't have anything to do with the current political climate tells me that they're too afraid to tell that story. Well, I'm going to give Marvel a little bit of the benefit of the doubt here because a couple things are going on. One, they were planning this out uh, at, a, uh, at a time when they did not know who the next president was going to be. I'm sure that they had this whole storyline outlined months before the election even happened. And we're at this point even just within his 100 days. So I'm going to give them that. Maybe they didn't plan it out like this here's and here okay well and here's the other thing too with that is obviously people are making this connection mm -hmm. you know between somebody we have a comic book that deals with you know fascist themes and then someone's like well why aren't you doing it with trump this is the problem with crying wolf when it comes to fascism because it's, it's kind of like the uh, have you ever heard of the godwin theory no so the Godwin theory, back before when we just had online message boards, like in the late 80s, early 90s, before the internet was really even a thing, there was a professor, uh, Professor Godwin, who actually came up with this theory that on the internet, every conversation will always boil down to referencing one of two related things, Hitler or the Holocaust. Because you I can, didn't know this had a name, but it's absolutely true. You can relate anything you want. Who's that, who's that kind of dude that's a little nuts and he... He always, Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck always relates everything to the Nazis, like everything. But the thing We're is- We're going to go viral now because we mentioned Glenn Beck. But you can relate Glenn Beck to the Nazis. I mean, like you can <laughs> you could do anything you want with that. And in America, since we love World War II, we've related so many things to World War II and the Nazis. Like every, that's just Nazis. And oh, well, that's just, the, you know who does that? Hitler. You know, you know, you know who socialized medicine? Hitler. Hitler. Yeah. 
Hitler. You know who tried to take guns away? Hitler. <laughs> yeah, it's like everything is Hitler yeah. or the Holocaust or or something like that. And so we have cried wolf for so long, but doing that, I think by the time that something has actually come along that may actually touch upon that metaphor, it's uh, it's played out now. It's a little played out now. Yeah. No, it's a really good point, and I want to go back to the point that you uh, just mentioned a second ago. Comic books, by their nature, are serialized entertainment, right? Mm -hmm. They had to have had a lot of this planned out months before. No one knew Trump was going to win, so how could your art just be packaged and ready to go for that eventuality? However, the other beauty of serialized art is that you can adapt it to what's going on around you as you're making it. You don't have to stick to a plan. They could have tailored this to be much more allegorical and much more meaningful art, but instead they're running away from that and just want to tell a story about Captain America versus the world. Case in point, if you ever watch uh, The Last Man on Earth, which is, you know, a disease breaks out and now there's a few people that were immune that are still alive. But they just made an episode, had to have made within the last few months, that references the current administration and the order in which they died from this disease. Wow. Um, right down to the point, like Betsy DeVos was like, like it was her turn to be president at that point. <laughs> like it, President oh, Pence amazing, is, yeah. is basically being escorted in his coffin down the, you know, the mall. And it's like, yeah, so they did that. I also want to say that I don't think that all art has to be political. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that at all. But when you have a character named Captain America, yeah. and he has had very pointedly political storylines in the past that have been very successful. Civil War was a very, very strict... Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And when you have this kind of golden opportunity to make your art matter in a really splashy way with a character that people actually care about right now, I think you have to seize that opportunity. And that's 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 where I'm disappointed. As fans of art that is alive and ongoing and going to keep on coming out every month, we have a space there to to comment on it and demand more of it than what we're getting. All right, well, enough about Captain America. Let's talk about drugs in small doses. This is all about microdosing. If you don't know what microdosing is, it's about giving people small, tiny doses of something uh, that is usually controversial or perhaps even, in this case, illegal. You give them a tiny, tiny dose and see what happens. But in this case, it's a little bit more targeted. LSD has been for decades now uh, used theoretically to treat a few ailments. I've heard about LSD used on migraines and things like that. In this case, they're looking at it in terms of depression. What's interesting about this is that this works really well for depression, does not work for anxiety, makes anxiety worse. Really? Yeah, and th- those two uh, those two disorders generally kind of hang out in the same area of the brain. LSD apparently does not make anxiety any better. Big surprise there. Good to know. <laughs> so this comes out of a uh, study in the UK. This is the Beckley Foundation. It's as reported in IFL Science. And uh, I'm just going to read from the uh, founder and director of the Beckley Foundation that says... Our research shows how taking a psychedelic reduces blood supply to the high-level center called the default mode network. Basically, there's a part of your brain that controls what you're thinking, particularly about yourself Mm. and your self-identity, which is the scary part of this. It identifies how we view ourselves as an individual. A separate study by the Imperial Imperial College of London, they did a different study, and they just threw LSD at someone's brain. Like, no microdoses, just threw it at someone's brain and saw just what would happen. And what they found out is- How has that not been done before? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I have a feeling it's been done a lot before, but maybe they just forgot. They're just not asking. They forgot the, right the study people. part. So what happens is that part of the brain just shuts right down, but all the other parts of the brain light up. This new study from the Beckley Foundation actually finds out why. It restricts blood flow. Psychedelics restricts blood flow to the part of your brain that actually deals with who you are, your introspection, all that navel gazing that you do. And that forces the other parts of your brain to actually exercise and start communicating in ways that they haven't before. The side effect of this is that all these other parts of the brain are more external. And so your sense of self suddenly transfers to being more kind of like, how am I part of the community? Your brain forces new pathways and new connections and kind of bypasses the part of you that was giving you depression. And so they think that in doing the micro doses, giving you this drug so that it doesn't actually affect your men mental state, but the drugs are still playing around and they're altering your brain, that they think that they can actually force your brain to create new pathways that are not depression. If you go back to our episode nine, Video Games and Depression, this is exactly what they're doing with that, only using video games to retrain your brain to use different parts of your brain for thought process. It sounds to me almost like it's, say you're training to get stronger legs, but you want to wear like ankle weights, yeah. for example, to make them even heavier so that they have to do even more. Yeah, so also, what's, what's the future for this look like? Or is this so preliminary in, that they're like, there's there's no way you're getting your LSD it's anytime not, soon? It's not just preliminary. It's illegal. You're not going to get this in the United States, my, which is here's here's my theory on this. If you were going to do this study, you shouldn't call it LSD or microdosing or anything like that, because if, if you call it LSD, it's never going to go anywhere. But like in America, we have a really great thing that we do where we'll like, okay, Let's take amphetamine, let's take methamphetamine, and let's take MDMA or ecstasy, all right? All really illegal. We'll, we'll put them together and we'll call it Adderall and nobody will know, all right? So that's- They have a brand problem, you're saying. Call it like, you know, some other like really cool branded name. Happy fun time. Happy fun time drug, anti-depressions, anti <laughs> anti-deps. Yeah. You know, this is an anti-dep. anti-deps. This yeah. is an anti-deps right here. Oh, it's perfect. What? It's not LSD, but it's an anti-dep. We're, we're fine giving stimulants <laughs> to kids and everything else. so right about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what Adderall is. I mean, it's amphetamines, methamphetamines, and ecstasy, but, you know, a doctor gives it to you and I can study. Let's uh let's talk about some of our friends down there in Portland real quick. Uh, Ground Control has some big news this week. They're expanding, um, w which we've known for a year. They basically bought out the building uh, next to them, or renting it out at least. There's there's a space kind of of equal size. It used to be a cafe, uh, and they knocked down a wall, created a hallway, and now it's going to be twice the size this weekend uh, coming up in the next few days. And then the original location that we've all loved is going to go through some remodeling. But in the end. You're going to have two bars, uh, a retail area, and the new the new location, when all is said and done, is going to be all pinball machines, which we know Ooh. Portland loves. So it's going to basically expand by 4,000 square feet, a lot more. More games, more beer, more good times. It got me thinking, if you don't know what ground control is, it's a barcade. This is a place you can go and have a beer and play arcade games. There's a few of them around. The East Coast actually has a chain called Barcade, but here we just have things like Ground Control. But um, Or another castle out in Bremerton. I was going to bring that and up. several so, other locations on the east side. Yeah, they have uh, Edmonds, Linwood, and Bremerton. Okay, so you just named one. Yeah. All right, and, and this is in the Seattle, Washington. So how many Barcades can you name? Can I name? Yeah, let's just say, okay, so we're in the Seattle Does region. Does count? I, okay, After here. like 9 p.m., it's basically a Barcade. I is think. that basically, do they serve beer there? 
Yes. Here's the thing is I read family friendly on GameWorks and I have difficulty associating that with Barcade. Okay, then uh Vidiot in West Seattle. Okay. I really like. All right. Um those are the ones off the top of my head. Or at least the ones that I've been to. Okay. Any other ones in the Northwest? Um no, I don't think so. I think Seattle kind of wins out on the barcade front. Portland wins out on pinball, of yeah. course. But well, because here's the thing: just because you're a bar and you have machines in there doesn't make you a barcade. Right. I mean, there's a very distinct difference. So I looked around Seattle and I, I created a list. Seattle has John John's. Oh yeah, Gamma Ray Games Ray Gun Lounge. Oh, I, I'm yeah. going to count oh. that as it. We just yeah, had we our costume them, yeah. contest <laughs> there. Yeah, we had our Emerald City after, Emerald City Comic Con. I didn't think of them as there. a barcade because they have uh, a lot of tabletop stuff there. Their main business is tabletops, but yeah. he is growing that arcade and um, the pinball. pinball especially. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm counting it. But uh, Flip Flip Ding Ding Georgetown, um, which is a great place if you've never been there. Shorties, I'm counting it. It's all pinball. They have a few. Mm. No? I don't know about that one. You going to debate me on this that's one? A, yeah, that's like a pinball destination. I don't think that's a barcade. It, it is a pinball mecca. but Because uh, barcade, to me, you have to have arcade in there. And I don't think Shorty's has enough arcade. They have some like whack-a-moles and, uh, uh, and some old video games. Uh, I'm sure you could find a Galaga in there. Yeah, I don't know about that one. All righty. That We're one's a stretch. Divided. Vidiot. And then, um, all right, so then what would you think about Attaball? Sure. It's, it's a, well, because it's... It's another pinball-centric. Yeah. yeah, I think that goes in the same category as Shorties then. Shout out to 8-Bit Arcade in, uh, I uh, believe they're in Renton. But uh, yeah, in Portland, I was only able to find one, Ground Control, which is, let's just be honest, in the Northwest, they're kind of the best. They're the standard. Bar- they, are the, they are the standard, the standard. barcade. I, I do want to give uh, another castle credit, though, because I think like in our area, they're the ones that are doing it right. Oh, they're awesome. They are amazing. Um, Seriously, if you're in Bremerton, just hang out at another castle down in downtown Bremerton just every night. That place is awesome. Easy. Easy. Easy to talk Shout to. Out to easy, easy to hang out to. That dude's awesome. <laughs> also in Edmonds and Linwood. Uh, Portland also has Quarter World. Portland has a lot of places to play video games, but I just don't think they would count as like barcades. As bars, like C Bar yeah. is is definitely is like maybe the shorties type thing where it's just yeah. pinball. Yeah, and then I looked at Vancouver. I even talked to some friends in Vancouver, and they couldn't tell me like any that were actually like barcade oriented. They have a really cool coffee shop. Shout yeah. out to the Far Out Coffee Post with their excellent selection of pinball. Mm. Shout out to all those places because I think it's awesome that our generation has these places to go because we all grew up playing video games. And naturally, now that we're all over 21, we want to drink while we're playing our video games in a social setting. So let's get to one more story real quick here. Dyer. So I'm a, uh, some people would accuse me of being a reporter in my day job. And in doing that, like I get a lot of uh, PR pitches from people. It's usually like, we're some, you know, online company of sorts and we're going to send you some data list or a top 10 list of yeah. like this or whatever. And so I've used I, one I of these. I used to call that uh, when I worked in the news media, <laughs> the spray and pray method. Yeah. You just kind of shoot these it off is. and then hope that someone bites. So uh, I got, uh, so I got two separate ones unrelated, but they both basically went state by state and picked out data points. One of them was... Uh, Card cash, they uh, basically deal with uh, gift cards. And so they dove into data and found out what, what states spend the most or least on gift cards uh, above the average in the nation. Um, the other one was highspeedinternet.com, which we've used before. Highspeed Internet dove into Google data and some of their own data and found out what states are spending most on their internet free time. They call it the guilty pleasures list. 
Mm. So what sorts of guilty pleasures are people indulging on? What, what are you spending your online time that isn't so productive? Which now, you- be- before you get into these, I like to think that here on Northwest Nerd, we try to elevate the conversation. Yes. Talk about not just what we like and dislike, but the issues behind it and uh-huh. and good storytelling and, and original reporting and stuff like that. Now, I'm going to be very disappointed if these guilty pleasures are all just porn, 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 porn. Oh. They're not, right? I'm going to have to make you wait with anticipation. All right, fine. Patient. That's going to bring us to this segment on. Oh, yeah. Northwest Nerd presentation on guilty pleasures and buying treasures. I'm afraid to say anything right now. You're afraid to say anything? (laughs) (laughs) What are the Northwest states spending money and online time on? Well, let's find out. Starting with Washington. What does Washington spend its online time doing? Tell me. What do you think? Uh, Amazon, probably. Oh, no. We like to spend our time surfing on Reddit. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Nothing beats kicking back at the end of the day to look at out-of-towners sharing photos of their trip. Endless photos of sunsets over the Puget Sound, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much all our Seattle is these days. And when Washington wants to give the gift of shopping, what do you think we spend 14% more on than any other state? What 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 gift card do you think we give more? Ooh, Starbucks gift cards. Everybody thinks Starbucks, but no. Amazon gift cards. Mm-mm. Really? We go to Nordstrom. Oh, that oh. makes a lot of sense, actually. Headquartered here. Uh, Yeah, collect five Nordstrom gift cards, and you can afford to shop there. Hey, Idaho. Hey. Hey. <laughs> you want me to... F- I'm Idaho? Idaho doesn't think we're looking at them, but we know what they're doing in their free time. Nothing, nothing makes you feel warm and fuzzy when you're getting nice and lonely with cat videos. Idaho, Idaho watches more cat videos than Idaho anyone else? watches more cat videos than anybody else. I would not have guessed that. There's actually a cat video block of the United States that includes... Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and North Dakota. Wow. All and together. here I thought they would all be on Farmers Only. No, no. Moving down to Oregon. Hey, Oregon. Hey. You little devils. <laughs> this is when such nobody a weird is, bit. It is. <laughs> when is nobody is bit. looking at Oregon, Oregon spends its time online investing. <laughs> 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 That's right, Oregon's getting its hands on some dividends. But what do they spend all that money on? Hmm? Cats? They spend more money on this gift card, 784% more than anybody else. Now, is on- it a singular brand? Yes. Nike. Victoria's Secret. Wow. Which actually is sexy, so way to go, Oregon. Hmm, online investing during the day, but nighttime is for lingerie. So do you want to know who's watching porn? <laughs> this like actually. Uh, I'm just relieved that it wasn't porn for all of them. No, we, we did not actually at all. Um, Alaska, by the way, give you a shout out. Uh, Alaska spends its time catching up on celebrity news. Which was sure. an extremely uh, boring data point to very me. Very boring, yeah. Yeah, also Alaska and... Um, Idaho, for their gift cards, they are the only ones that registered less below the average by like 100%. They hate Walgreens and Rite Aid. 
They spend like less money on that. But anyway, uh, if you are in the United States, uh, High Speed Internet notes that Illinois, Kansas, Louisiana, New Mexico, and Texas, all states <laughs> where sex education basically stresses abstinence, is also the places where they watch the most porn out of the United States. Um, states with higher singles obviously spend more time on dating sites. That's uh, Washington, D.C., Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. Grinder in Hawaii, which also has the highest uh, percentage of people who identify as LGBTQ. Um, here's the thing I didn't know. Sugar daddy sites and sugar mama sites are very, very popular in Nevada, Georgia, Florida, Nebraska, Missouri, and Tennessee. Wow. Yeah. All states with higher uh, rates of retirees. <laughs> I don't know what to do. All right. Well, coming up next, uh, Dyer will... Take us inside the indie tabletop game scene here in the Pacific Northwest uh, with some special guests who uh, I'm really excited to have on the show. Presenting the Cones of Dunshire, a brand new gaming experience. You might not know it, but they're everywhere. More places than you realize. Out of sight, crafting, scheming, designing. 8 to 12 players, two wizards, a maverick, the arbiter, two warriors, a corporal, and a ledgerman. Now, the ledgerman just keeps score. Gamers. No, not video gamers. Board and card gamers, known as hobby games. They're the pursuers of classic realms like Magic the Gathering or Dungeons and Dragons. Or newer universes, such as Settlers of Catan, all the expansion packs that go with that. Pandemic, or games like Splendor. Actually, let me tell you more about the trivia cards because you're going to need to know about roadblocks first. No, never mind. Think about challenge play. Is it's basically the game in reverse. These hobby games go deeper. Just as with fans of music who start their own bands or beer enthusiasts who start brewing at home, these players are making their own games. Then you roll three dice to see how many dice you roll with. Oh, 16. Perfect. Lots of choices. Okay, each turn goes roll, buy, action. Oh my god. The Maverick should be able to trade lumber for agriculture credits. How have I not thought of this before? It's a scene unto itself, with many of these games breaking into the mainstream. And no, not Cones of Dunshire, which is actually a fictitious game from Parks and Rec. Cards Against Humanity, that very offensive party game, that was an indie project. Exploding Kittens, whose creators include Seattle's Matthew Inman of Oatmeal fame, that was also an independent project. There are hundreds, even thousands more out there. Drafting prototypes, crowdfunding on the internet, getting their original games out there. Some succeed and win this DIY challenge. And others, well, they roll the dice, but they lose their turn. The, the board game and card game scene as a whole has really evolved over time. I grew up in game stores. So game stores actually existed, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, but they were kind of smaller, more kind of subcultures. When it comes to the board game scene, Chris Rollins is pretty deeply embedded. But as just nerd and geek culture has grown and pop culture has grown and kind of become such a huge force. All of these sort of subcultures of geekdom are also being brought up with that tide. And so in a lot of ways, board games and card games are kind of seeing their renaissance. There's more games coming out now than there were ever um, in all the 70s and 80s. He has a podcast called NPC Podcast. It's all about hobby games. 
You can find him roaming Card Kingdom and Cafe Mox and Ballard or its sister location in Bellevue. He's the community and content manager for the business, which is a hobby game retailer that incorporates a cafe pub type vibe into the mix. Mox is like a gathering place for friends, like the Central Perk Coffee Shop in the show Friends, or the diner in Seinfeld. But in this case, it's for board games. You can grab any game they sell, sit down, order a coffee or a beer, and play. And business is booming. Now, Card Kingdom's main business is selling Magic the Gathering cards online, but its physical store is a resource for a range of games, which include, at times, harder to find, independently produced titles. And that's where Chris gets to work every day. I have a problem because I, I work at a game store, so I buy a lot of games. Um, and then I also really love Kickstarter because I love supporting independent creators. So I'd probably say I have, I don't know, between two and 300 games at home. And unfortunately, I'd probably say I have around 30 to 40 that are unopened and unplayed so far. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a very avid game consumer. So from where Chris stands, he has no doubt that the hobby game scene is growing. For example, take the International Spieltag, or more commonly known as the Essen Game Fair. It's in Germany, and it's the largest board game convention in the world. At Essen last year, there was 1,100 games released at one single trade show. I think there was almost 3,000 games SKUs released uh, last year, and that's more games than were ever produced like in the 70s, and that's in one year, right? Uh, so there's all this sort of new stuff coming in, but it, but there's still classics as well. But in addition to that, you have all these indie gamers who are coming in and creating new things with new sensibility, and, and it really makes a very exciting time for gamers. Like, And that's the cool thing you know, about gaming now is that it just continues to grow. When you see so many other creative people and like when you appreciate what they do and you think maybe I could do this like let's see if I can let's let's see if I can create a board game you know that seems like a crazy idea but who knows maybe I can Dylan Mangini he's one such designer looking to put his own specially crafted game out there now Full disclosure, if you're a regular listener to Northwest Nerd and follow us on social media and so forth, you're likely already aware of Dylan's work. He custom designed the Northwest Nerd logo that you see on the podcast app. Over the past few years, that graphic design talent has also gone into a passion project, an entirely original card game. Uh, yeah, my game is Mephisto. It's a one to four player strategy card game. There's maybe like 120 cards, uh, but it's just cards and then dice. There's four dice as well. Um, the theme for the game is kind of like a standard fantasy fair. So basically you're an adventure. You're exploring the realm's most dangerous dungeon in, in search for treasure and glory and fame and all that good stuff. But then you fall into a pit and die. To your surprise, you wake up and you find the, the archdemon, Mephisto, grinning before you. And he offers you a bargain in order to restore you back to life or restore you back to health. But in, in order to do that, you have to capture seven monster souls for him and then one more mortal soul um, in order to please this trickster demon. So the goal of the game is basically to fight monsters, capture their souls, and then trade them into this demon to get your own soul back. Before all this, Dylan spent years playing Magic. That was kind of like his gateway game. But playing games kind of started giving him ideas for his own. He's been crafting Mephisto bit by bit. 
It doesn't take long after talking with Dylan to see that this is the sort of thing his meticulous mind is geared towards. Uh, the theme and that whole story, that was developed after the, the core mechanics and the core gameplay were designed. You can really go either way. Like you can have a great idea for a storyline or some, some world that you want to build and then you can create a game based off of that. Or you can just start with some, some mechanics like uh, maybe you want to have a, a tile building game, you know, where you lay down all these hexes on a board and that's all you know. And from there you think, okay, well, well, how could that translate into a story? Maybe you're exploring exploring the seas and you're a pirate on a ship and you are uncovering these different tiles as you explore. So really, yeah, you, you can start with mechanics or you can start with a theme and either one can inform your design choices. Did you just invent a new game right now? Oh, it's, it's very easy to... <laughs> to invent a game off the top of your head, the hard part is actually developing it and making it fun. He's worked through this or that with Mephisto. He's scrapped a few ideas, tweaked levels of complexity, balancing gameplay with fun, with story. As a graphic designer, he's even done his own art from Mephisto. The artwork isn't completely finished either. It's just, uh, basically got it, got it to a stage where I could feel comfortable showing it off. Basically prototype copies. Yeah, once you get those, like once you get it to a stage where you can ha where you have something in hand, like a prototype, then the goal is to get it into as many players' hands as possible. Preferably people who don't know you and you want to get feedback from those people. Those are called blind playtesters. And th th that's kind of the most one of the most difficult things to do really cuz like how do you engage with these people that you don't know? You you have to steal their time. You know, maybe like an hour or longer to get. They have to read a rule book, um, sit down with, and maybe play with a fin unfinished product, which is kind of a lot to ask. That's where he is now. He's testing it out. Dylan set up a website, MephistoCardGame.com. You can print out a copy of the game at home and give it a try. The hope is that players will give it time, test it out, give feedback of what works and what doesn't, and then it's back to the game board for more tweaking. While Dylan works away, there probably isn't a better place to be doing what he's doing than the Northwest. There's a video game community throughout the region, Microsoft, Nintendo, PopCap, Big Fish, Valve, just to name a few. But there's also Wizards of the Coast who produce magic, not to mention Dungeons and & Dragons, and a range of game distributors. We have a lot of people here who are sort of spearheading you know, independent game design. There's a group called Playtest Northwest that is actually ran by the folks at Daily Magic Games. And it is a group of designers who will uh, coordinate public playtests of unpublished games. There's not a lot of other places in the country that have such a dedicated service for independent game designers. And, you know, because we also have all these, you know, big name designers as well who are working for places like Wizards of the Coast or at least have worked for them in the past, we have this really interesting, vibrant community that's very supportive of independent creators. And it creates this really vibrant community that honestly, like I think that in Seattle, we have it better than almost anyone else when it comes to the amount of resources uh, available. And so you have this kind of, this melting pot of, you know, nerdery, I guess. That community is valuable. It's a resource, not just for being around fellow hobby game enthusiasts, because once an independent designer decides they are ready to launch their game, that is a whole other level. So as an independent artist, there's two uh, methodologies to go from your game idea to your game being published. Uh, you can design the game and then pitch that game to existing publishers. That's sort of like the traditional way. Now with crowdfunding resources like Kickstarter, 
you could also uh, design the game and then decide to self-publish. Now that's a very big distinction. There's a difference between designing a game and starting a business. And you have to decide which one of those things you're comfortable with, with doing. I know a lot of people who have designed games, put them out on Kickstarter, seen how hard it was to actually publish a game, and then now all they do is design and sell their games to other people. So if you want to be the type of person to manage you know, overseas fulfillment and figure out how to freight your game from China to the U.S. and how to deal with manufacturers and all those types of things. That, that that type of stuff appeals to you. If you want to have complicated, you know, tax issues, then go the self-publishing route and you can do that. Chris has done this, by the way. He's also a game designer. He's been working on his own game, The Last Garden, for a few years now with his friend Matt. And he's gotten it off the ground the same way a lot of others have. Kickstarter. In case you're unaware and have been saving your money for a few years, Kickstarter is a crowdfunding platform. It allows people to donate money to projects online. But there are so many board games on Kickstarter that it's it's kind of overwhelming because you're just like, oh gosh, there's an, this brand new game looks really cool. How am I going to compete with that? And then the next day there's like even a cooler one. You're like, okay, well, like, and they, they might even be a similar theme. You know, how many fantasy themed board games are there? There's an insane amount is the answer. <laughs> Cards Against Humanity, that was a Kickstarter. Exploding Kittens, also a Kickstarter. In fact, Exploding Kittens set records in 2015, reaching its $10,000 goal in eight minutes. Ultimately, it got 219,000 backers and raised more than $8.7 million to produce it. It's the most backed project in Kickstarter history, beating out Reading Rainbow and the Veronica Mars movie, all for a game. Say, say I wanted to bring it to production. I wanted to make it so you could buy it at a board game store. Uh, at, at this stage, uh, the most reasonable route for that would be to kickstart it. And enough that you can print uh, like, a, like a first print run. You'll have to like have someone in China print them for you, send them over, and then have like Amazon fulfillment, send them across the states. And that's, that's kind of the, the realistic goal for, I think, most independent uh, board game designers. And I think at, the, at that point, you've kind of like... I would have met my goals at that point. Today, Kickstarter has become saturated with hobby games. Take a look through its record-setting projects and you will find more games than not. And it takes a lot of work to successfully run a campaign among all of this. So in testing out how to market his game, Chris actually did something pretty clever. He created a game, another game, a smaller package of fun, just so he could go through the motions of Kickstarter and production. It was a micro game called Under My Bed, uses 18 cards and pretty simple to play. Turned out that test was pretty successful. He only asked for $100 and got 9,500, which translated into better footing for running a Kickstarter for The Last Garden, his bigger project, which he did earlier this year. He had set a goal for $9,800. He raised more than 28,000. So there's another angle to this hobby game explosion and the folks who are designing their own. Both Dylan and Chris brought this up. I, I think at the end of the day, like the one thing that sort of ties this entire conversation together is communities. Our store exists to serve a, a, the gaming community and to serve the community of people who are gamers, they just don't know it yet. And if you want to get into publishing games and sort of making your own games into reality, it also has to start from that community. You have to have a group of people around you who are willing to support you and are willing to, to help you out. I definitely would encourage people who are listening or maybe outside of the Northwest to 
find where those communities and pockets of people are. You know, there are people near you that are doing these things that are interested in, in what you're doing, interested in what you're creating, and find them and get in with them and, and meet them and, and help them uh, first and then ask them for their support later. It's clear that he has a bit of a mind for marketing. He has a podcast for hobby games. He's involved in the hobby game scene. His number one piece of advice is being active on social media, engaging people. Get your name known out there among the crowd. Consider that when you look at his Kickstarter campaigns, even the one for the micro game, they were beyond successful. And that didn't just happen. This is crowdfunding and the crowd comes first. You have to build up that crowd. You can't just expect Kickstarter to do the work for you. You can't put up a project and press launch and then expect to be successful. You have to bring people to the platform and then the platform just magnifies that because, because momentum is, is everything on Kickstarter. So are you willing to put in the work and this might be years of work gradually building up your community enough so that you know that when you push that button on launch day, there's going to be, you know, 100, 200 people that are going to come in and back it immediately. If you're not willing to put in that type of work, then are you willing to put in the work of, you know, slowly building up your designs, going to events, meeting publishers face-to-face, sending emails out to publishers, seeing if, if there's interest in your game and, and go that route with it. Either way, it's a, it's it's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of work. That's the community Dylan is moving through now with Mephisto. And like Chris, he has a pretty good feeling he's in the right place when he decides to launch it. No matter where I go, you know, Washington to Oregon, and if it's like a, if it's a Friday night, I know I can play Friday Night Magic. I, any city I go to, there'll be a store that has a tournament for card games or board games, and you can really just jump in, and you're kind of part of that community no matter where where you are. And I feel like it's it's sort of the same everywhere you go in in the Northwest. You, you you feel like you belong in those in those crowds, and everyone will be welcoming you in the same way. Big thanks to Kevin McLeod and the Double Clicks for the music in that piece. The Double Clicks, which you can hear right now, slowly fading out underneath my voice. And thanks also to Chris Rollins and Dylan Mangini for sitting down with us to talk tabletop games. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Mephisto, uh, Dylan's card game in particular. Because you've played it. Yeah, I, I am a playtester for it, and... I've gotten to see it change just a tiny bit. I've played mostly the finished product, and you can print it out and play it right now if you wanted to. That's the version that I've played. It's really cool. It's a lot yeah. of fun. And being a playtester, I think there's a uh, there's a certain mystique to it that I didn't expect. I was like, oh, cool. I get to play Dylan's game finally. He's been working on it forever so, and refused to show it to me until like just a few months ago. What do you I mean a certain to mystique it. to it? I mean, you kind of feel like... Uh, have you ever gotten to see a movie like a month before it actually hit theaters? Yeah. Kind of feels like that. You're like, ooh, I'm special. Did did uh, I'm assuming you played this with Dylan. I didn't play it with him, but he was there when I was playing so okay. that we could ask him questions and stuff. And the 3x3 three three grid for the cards that he sets up and just the mechanics of it is really inventive, and I really enjoyed playing the game. It reminded me of, and I don't know if he likes this comparison actually, but Uh-oh. I'll throw it out there anyway, Uh-oh. but... It reminded me of what I wish Munchkin was. Okay. Munchkin is really popular, uh, really fun game, but I got some problems with it. Like what? How rigid the gameplay is yeah. in a lot of ways and how little choice and agency that the players have. 
So that's, that game usually comes down to an end game where you save up your really good cards until the end so you can just screw over everybody yeah. until all of those cards are spent and then the last person who wasn't screwed over ends up winning. That's kind of the point that, that Dylan was kind of making. It wasn't uh, necessarily in uh, the feature, but he did mention that you know a lot of the inspiration comes from you really like these other games, but you kind of wish you could do this or that with them. Yeah. You know, and so you you oh, I'll just make my own game. Yeah. It's kind of like you really like this microbrewery, but you really wish it would be just a little bit bitier here or something. A little bit and more. And then bitter. you go yeah, and then you go and make your own beer. I mean, it's kind of the yeah. same idea. And I actually know that he doesn't enjoy playing Munchkin, which is why I wasn't sure he really? liked that comparison. But yeah, the art for Dylan's game I think is way better um from Mephisto. And that's something that we talked to him a little bit about, but uh just in the interest of time, uh didn't make it into your story this week. He had a very interesting comment that I think I think a lot of people can relate to. A lot of these fantasy games, um, board games or card games, kind of have a, I don't know, it's kind of like the art's been kind of boiled down into a very particular type. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, an elf looks like an elf. Um, an orc looks like an orc. Like, all of it's very, very similar. All it's very, very, like, m- mysterious and misty. And his went another and it's route. Very, it's very like oil painting yeah. a lot of the time. He too. went another route, which was, uh, he referenced Zelda a lot about how you can do this, but have a little bit be just beyond cartoony. It doesn't feel like that kind of Misty Mountain, you know, fantasy stuff, but it's still a fantasy game. And it just kind of adds a, a, a layer of fun to it. Very colorful, very colorful cards as well. Um, and if you go to his website, you can actually see, you can actually print your own off and one thing that I like that he that he kind of mentioned was um, the process of actually, aside from the fact that he can come up with uh, a game off the top of his head, if anybody wants to create their own game, try just taking a regular deck of cards because it's already set up with limitations. That's kind of what you want, limitations. Yeah. And then you just try to be creative within those limitations. And a card deck has four suits, has numbers, it has, uh, you know, faces. Uh, you can... Try to take that and then, okay, maybe maybe the hearts are for healing and the diamonds are swords and all this other, like, just weird things you can kind of come up with them. And then you just create your own game. And from there, you just kind of start chiseling away the outer edges and actually come up with a uh, a game of your own, which he said he's, he's done that a couple times. And it's, it's kind of fun to see what you can come up with. I do think it would be really fun to have a Northwest Nerd board game someday. Uh, a Northwest Nerd board game. Yeah, I want I want a Northwest Nerd board game someday, but I have no idea what it will be like. I would love to hear from from listeners of the pod what they think a Northwest Nerd board game would be like. Here's okay. So all right. So restrictions. Well, your your framework. What you got to do. Here's what I would say. And you mm-hmm. and you and you correct me if you think we should go some other route. Uh, I'd like a system of cards and a board. Okay. All right. So you have to like move somewhere. I would think that trivia questions have to not be the focus of it, but at some point, if you land somewhere, you have to do a trivia thing. Um, I would like there to be some kind of fooling people around, like trying to steer people in the wrong direction with fake news, and you have to call them out for fake news. There's some sort of deception element. I There's a like deception that, yeah. element. Uh, I don't know. Maybe a little, you know, pieces could be like a coffee cup or a typewriter, preferably a typewriter, stuff like that. Yeah, that could be really cool. But yeah, uh, send a us your suggestions. Of <laughs> a sheet of Warbla. A sheet of Warbla. I gotta be the coffee cup. I'm the sheet of Warbla. <sighs> That'd be so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people can send us their suggestions on our Facebook page, uh, NW Nerd on Facebook. I would love to hear 
what you all think our game would be like. Have at it. Thank you one more time to our guests this week, Chris Rowlands and Dylan Mangini. Keep an eye out for the Mephisto card game Kickstarter that will be launching later this year. And it's hard to believe, but we have just five more episodes left for this first season of Northwest Nerd. We got some great stories coming up. I won't reveal too much, but the music of Zelda will play a role and how video game streaming can help solve crimes. Really. But that's a story for another time. Don't forget to go follow us on social media. Just search for NW Nerd. Rate us on iTunes too. It takes just a minute and it helps us out a ton. And with that, we'll see you in two weeks, nerds. It's called The Thief, right? Yeah. For whatever reason. Or The Robber or whatever. Yeah, The Thief, The Robber. Uh, I learned how to play this game from some good friends of ours who never called it that. They called it The And to this day, oh, that's what I know it as. That's what it looks like.